Well, I want to say how grateful I am for the chance to be here together with you this morning. It really is a privilege every time we get to open the Word of God. You know, I think a lot of times when we open God's Word in our own private uh, devotions and so forth, we kind of forget what a privilege it is just to have it, just to actually have the Word of God before us, because every time we open the Word of God, we have the chance to see God more as He really is. You know, we sang a song, Raul had us sing a little bit ago, about the name of God. And I wasn't familiar with the song, but did you hear all the different things the name of God does? Now let me ask you a question. Is that because this name of God is some sort of a rabbit's foot that we keep in our pocket, and when we have really big need, we kind of rub on the rabbit's foot and everything comes all right? That's kind of the, is, or is it a magic talisman that, that just does for us the thing we need, that, kind of an Aladdin's lamp? Is that what this name of God is? No, why is it that it's so special to call upon the name of God? It's because when we call upon the name of God, we're calling upon all that God is. We're being brought into contact with the very nature and character of God himself. And so that's what happens when we open the word of God. We're being brought into contact with the very nature and character of God himself. So this morning, we're going to be looking at a book of the Bible, the very last book of the Bible. You can turn there if you'd like, the book of Revelation, where we're brought into a very special picture ...of the nature and character of God himself. And my hope is that we go, as we go through this process of looking at some of the amazing anthems... ...these surprising anthems in the book of Revelation for the end of the ages... ...that we would be brought a little bit closer to a realization of the nature and character of who our God really is. When we think of the book of Revelation, a lot of times I think we think of it as a roadmap for the future... And it is that, right? I mean, it tells us what's going to be taking place in the days to come in that time at the end of time when God brings everything right. But it's more than that. If you look at the very first verse of the book of Revelation, you'll find that John says that it is particularly a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a revelation of the Lord Jesus himself. So when we're looking at the book of Revelation we have that awesome opportunity to come into contact with God. And it's contact with the Lord Jesus. It's contact with God our Father that actually is the change agent in our lives. You've got a pernicious habit you're trying to beat. You've got a difficult situation in your life that you need an answer for. The contact that you have with God through his word, through his name, is the answer to that problem. How will it be? How will God work it out? I couldn't exactly say, but I do know this. When we're coming into contact with God, he always is at work with us as that contact is brought through by the Holy Spirit into a connection with our lives. One just practical note, if you want, there's a little insert in your bulletin, and it um, actually is not really an outline. Um, it's just questions that you might think about as you consider, as you hear what we're talking about this morning from the book of Revelation. You can follow along there if you like. There's no particular reason that you have to, but it is something that might give you some questions to, to hang ideas on this morning. So as we look at Jesus in the book of Revelation, we're changed, and every time we grasp God's purpose, which is the other thing that's mentioned here in that very first verse of the book of Revelation, every time we grasp God's purpose better, likewise, we are changed. That's really what John says in a previous writing he's, he has given to us in 1 John chapter 3. You'll remember the verses. He says, Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, 
and verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Did you catch that? What is the change agent when we meet Jesus? When we, this is what's going to be happening. We're going to be talking about it in the book of Revelation. We're going to be, in a sense, meeting Jesus through the eyes of John. What happens when we meet Jesus according to 1 John chapter 3? When we actually see him, what's going to take place? We will be like him. We're going to be changed. We're going to be different than we are because we were brought into contact with his nature and character. Just like we talked about with the song that sings about his name. It, the name of the Lord, it says in the book of Proverbs, is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Why? Because it, no, it's not a magic talisman. It's because we're running into the character of God who for us is a very fortress in all of our need, all of our distresses, all of our discouragements in life. So turn with me to the fourth chapter of this book of Revelation, because we're going to be taking a look at the nature and character of God through the eyes of some of the anthems that are found here in this book. And I think you're going to find that they're surprising. I think you'll find, as I did, that they might shake you up a little bit and give you a different vista on who God is than maybe you had had before. This first section, let me read for you, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 4 says, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, and here's the anthem, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Now a little bit of background to understand the context into which we're hearing this song sung. You'll remember that John was, he was um, on the Isle of Patmos for the faith, for the Lord Jesus. And as he was there, he was, it says, in the spirit on the Lord's day. So gathered, he, he couldn't gather with anyone in his banishment, but he was there worshiping God on the day of the Lord when some, an amazing vision came to him. And the previous three chapters are largely about the instructions that the Lord Jesus gives directly to the churches. We're not going into those this morning, but we are stepping instead into the second time that this voice like a trumpet speaks to John and says again in a different way, come up here. And where does John come in chapter 4? Well, he steps into the very throne room of God. Now, this is an amazing context into which to speak anything, into which we could see anything. But here, in the very throne room of God, John is given a view of God himself. So, you'll notice that he, he sees some amazing things back earlier in chapter 4. He sees the, the Lord who sits upon the throne like Jasper and Carnelian. So, John is using images that we could connect with. What he's seeing is so outstanding, so amazing, so otherworldly that he has to just grasp for images, and he uses things like jasper and carnelian, which are semi-precious stones of red and orange and amber. And then he says there's a rainbow about this throne that's like emerald, it's green. And then there are these 24 elders dressed in white with gold crowns on their head. There are these living creatures like a lion, an ox, a man, like an eagle in flight. But beyond even the sound, sights, there are sounds, there are flashes of lightning, and there's rumblings of thunder that would accompany those flashes Seven torches, which are the seven spirits of God, and it's in the midst of all of that glory. In the midst of all of that glory. That this anthem, worthy 
are you, are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Why is God worthy, according to this great anthem of the book of Revelation? Because he made it all. He's worthy just because he made it. But I want to show you in chapter 5 that there's another reason why God is worthy. Look down, if you will, at again verse 9, this time of chapter 5. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth And in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So if God in chapter 4 is worthy of praise and honor and glory because he is the creator of all things. What is the reason that he's worthy in chapter 5? Because he redeemed a people for himself. Now, I mean, when you stop to think about this, this is really an amazing idea. That God would create everything is almost within the confines of my imagination. I I mean, he's a great God. He can do all kinds of amazing things. And so when he speaks and speaks a world into existence, I mean, that's a stretch maybe from my imagination, but it makes sense to me. It's a little, it's logical. I can see that God would do that. But chapter 5 stretches me yet further. That God would love a people who rejected him. So much. So much. That he would send his own son to die for them. I can't really grasp that. And I think that's why you're hearing this amazing anthem pouring out in in terrific volume in chapter 5. Because as as John looks and hears the anthem of heaven... All about the throne are saying, not just worthy is God the great creator. True, he is. And he would be worthy if he were nothing more than the creator. But he's worthy because as creator, he has done yet one more astonishing thing in redeeming his people to himself. Now, it's important that you have the context of chapter 5 as well. Remember, we were in chapter 4 before the very throne room of God. We haven't left in chapter 5. We're still before the throne of God. But... Something terrible has happened. There's trouble in heaven in chapter 5. And you see it in verse 1. At the right hand it says, I saw at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Now it's interesting that we aren't told what the scroll is at this point. Right? We aren't told. It's just the big need. There's trouble in heaven. There's something important that there is a scroll with seals and it must be opened. So there's a great search put on. They search in heaven. They search on earth. They search under the earth. And no one is found who is worthy to open the scroll. 
no one is worthy to break the seals. I don't know how John really understood the gravity of the situation, but somehow, being in the Spirit, he understood something of the nature of the importance of this scroll. And do you see what it says he did? It says, I wept loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Something of the magnitude of what was taking place was in the middle of John's mind, and he realized this scroll must be opened. We must find out what's within it. It's, within, it's in the hand of God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. No one is able to open it. We must open the scroll. And he began to weep loudly. He was connected to God's purposes, understood something, something of what God was doing. And then you see the comfort that's given to John. In verse 5 it says, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne and then the anthem. Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open the seals, for you were slain. You redeemed the people for God. You ransomed them from sin and death and hell. From every tribe you did this, and from every language, from every people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's the context into which we hear this second great anthem of the book of Revelation spoken, that God redeemed a people through his Son, but I want to ask you a question. We often say, that's, that's wonderful. Jesus is worthy of all our praise and adoration. Jesus is worthy of our lives. And he is all of those things. But I want to ask you, what was he worthy to do? So, I mean, he's already done the redeeming, right? He's ransomed the people for God. That's why he is worthy. That's, and then we've seen what he's worthy of. He's, he's worthy of might and wisdom and glory and honor and blessing and wealth and all the... He's worthy of everything, right? That's what he's worthy of. But what is he worthy to do? And this is where the anthem becomes, to me, very surprising. Because he's worthy. He's worthy to judge the world. Now, if you look down just a little bit further, you find that as these seals are broken... As the Lamb begins, as the Lord Jesus himself begins to unwrap the scrolls, he breaks the seals and looks therein, that there are a number of things that take place. So first of all, you find that he goes out conquering. Then there's war. Then there's famine. Then there's death. Then there's vengeance. Then there's disaster like earthquakes and darkness. Then there's devastating silence and more judgment. So hold on a minute. We have an enormous celebration going on in heaven of the worthiness of the great Lamb. We have a tremendous amount of angst over the possibility that the scroll might not be able to be opened. John not knowing. I mean, it was apparent that no one was able to open the scroll. And what was all of this excitement? What was all of this angst about? The possibility that there might be no one eligible to judge the world. Does that surprise you? I think that a lot of times I get 
you know, into my mind some of the things that, uh, that you know, it's like we're supposed to turn the other cheek, right? And so we don't, we're not looking for judgment. We're supposed to be the people who are peacemakers, who, who are always looking out for other people. And that's true. But there still is an importance, a significance to the fact that God will one day come as judge. So important that we find John weeping loudly. So important that an anthem of praise in heaven is raised like very few other anthems in the entire Bible. Worthy is the Lamb because he has conquered and is able to open the scroll of God's judgment. One judgment after another. And I want to show you that it's super important to us for a variety of reasons. Look with me at, at uh, a few of these other places. We'll find these anthems in, in Revelation. Revelation chapter 16. I'll just read a few of them quickly for you because this is not isolated to just this one section of the book of Revelation. It's a repeat idea. Revelation 16 in verses 4 through 7, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you have brought these judgments. For they shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them, I mean, this is kind of astonishing language, you've given them blood to drink. It is what they deserved. That's an anthem in the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation chapter 18, verses 4 through 8. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed, for as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see for this reason. Her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Revelation 19, 1 through 5, and I heard what seemed to be a great, I'm a little behind on the PowerPoint, sorry about that. I heard what seemed to be a, the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah. Again, shocking imagery. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. We like to think of God as being a loving God because he is a loving God. But I want you to understand this morning that the only way that God can be truly loving is if he is likewise truly just. If God, in the name of love, ignored all the injustices of this world, if he overlooked all the travesties that have been visited on his people for millennia, would that be, would it be real love? Wouldn't we have reason to say that's just detachment or maybe disinterest? You say you love us, but I don't know. I'm not sure I can buy that if you really turn a blind eye to all the troubles of all your people for all the centuries. 
many years ago, I had uh, a couple of my children got into some kind of a tiff. I don't exactly know what the original problem was. I'm sure that someone was aggravating someone else. And um, in order to protect the, the uh, guilty, I won't name their names, but one of my sons got angry enough with whatever was going on with one of my daughters that he walked up and bit her on the back. I mean, really bitter, like broke skin. Now, I suppose that I could have just said, you know, that is too bad. I'm really sorry about that. I know that must hurt. And um, sorry, honey. And told my son, now that, no, no, that, that wasn't nice. But I think you'd have accused me of not being a very loving father if I'd done that. Because love demands more than a nice pat on the head. Oh, I'm so sorry. It demands that the right thing be done. Doesn't it? And I gave to my son some discipline that he remembers to this day. God is not blind and he is loving to the nth degree. Beyond what you and I could ever imagine. We kind of want to say it doesn't really, you know, we just, we just love and it doesn't really matter what happens. John says it's a crying matter. That God will one day come and judge the world in righteousness. That all the wrongs that have been visited on all his people for all these centuries will be made right. So we're coming in contact this morning with a surprising God, a God who is a God of justice, a God who is, yes, a God of mercy, but whose mercy has a limit. James tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment. That's true. And we see that over and over. For example, in the book of Jonah, you remember Jonah's, Jonah's consternation with being sent to Nineveh at all. The Ninevites, wicked people, had visited terrible atrocities on Jonah's own people. You can understand why Jonah didn't want to go. He jumps in the boat, heads to Tarshish. God sinks the ship. Well, he didn't sink the ship. He sent the, he got, Jonah got thrown overboard and, and swallowed by the great fish. And Jonah's really upset about the whole situation, as you, as you remember. Do you remember what happened though at the end? So, so Jonah goes. He finally does do his task because the, the great fish spits Jonah out on the beach. And he goes and preaches and... And he says, and, and the people come, come to God. In fact, it's like a whole revival in Nineveh, the city of Nineveh. And most preachers would be jumping up and down because this is amazing. God has done a great work, and, um, and I got to be a participant in that great work with God, but not Jonah. Jonah is saying, I knew that you were a God of mercy. And that's why I didn't want to come here in the first place. I knew you'd do it. I knew you're a God of steadfast love, that you relent of disaster. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. Jonah chapter 3 tells us, chapter 4 tells us, and he was angry. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Yes, God is a God of mercy but just because he's a God of mercy does not mean there is not, that judgment is not still on track. The book of Revelation tells us in these anthems that it is. 
And because we know that God's justice will come one day, it can give us courage to be merciful in the interim. To reach out in mercy and in kindness to the people around us every day. That they would not be among those upon whom God one day visits his judgment. Because judgment is coming. So God is really only, only loving to the extent that his love is also just. I want to show you that, that um, this is something that even the souls in Revelation are crying out for under the altar. You may look at uh, Revelation chapter 6 if you'd like. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9. This is actually one of the seals that the Lamb is breaking open. So the Lamb breaks open this seal. And in verse 9 it's the fifth seal. And this is the whole vignette of all that's taking place when that fifth seal is opened. Listen to what it says. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice. O sovereign Lord, holy and true How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were given white robes and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. It's really important that God fulfills the justice that his love demands. Even to those who are in heaven and awaiting that day, very interestingly, when you, when you look at justice through the Bible, it's a huge theme. The justice of God is not limited to the book of Revelation. It's something that begins really in the very beginning. In fact, if you take a look at the very beginning, the very, the, the, well, the second sin that we're told about in the Bible. Do you know what the second sin in the Bible is that we're told about? There might have been, probably were others, but the second sin in the Bible that we're told about? The first one was what? They partook of the fruit... And eight, though they were told not to. And there's all kinds of things we could talk about, lots of amazing imagery in that, but there's a second sin. It was when Cain killed Abel, right? Okay, so do you know what you're told when Cain killed Abel? Abel, God comes to Cain, and what does he say he hears? You got it. He hears the blood of Abel crying from the ground. What do you think that blood was crying? You got it. That blood was crying justice. Because even even that blood, that first blood spilled, demanded the justice of God. And so you remember actually Cain bargaining with God and saying, "My, my sentence is too great for me. And God justly but mercifully gave Cain a sentence that he could bear. Very important that we understand that God's justice is from cover to cover of the Bible. Now, I'll tell you just one interesting side note that will maybe be valuable to you. If you looked at the book of Hebrews, you'll find that there is another blood that's crying out in chapter 12. In chapter 12 and verse 24, it says, We come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, listen, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So what does Abel's blood cry? Justice, justice, bring justice. What does this blood cry? Mercy, have mercy. 
You hear that from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself as he shed his blood. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. But when we turn to the book of Revelation, we find that even that mercy comes to an end, to a righteous and just end, to demonstrate the full character and flavor, the full beauty and all the colors of the love of God, so that his love is backed by his supreme justice, so that the slain lamb that John sees in chapter 5 is now coming as the just judge. So, does this mean that we're supposed to rejoice over the downfall of the wicked? No, in fact, we're specifically forbidden from that. Some of you probably have the verse in your minds. It says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls, Proverbs chapter 24. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. We are not rejoicing in the justice of God as those who are rejoicing at the downfall of a personal enemy. That's a very different thing. That's taking vengeance into our own hands. We're rejoicing that our God makes everything right. That at the end of the day, he will put all the pieces together and he will bring right all that's been done wrong. In fact, in the book of Romans, we're told that we have no excuse, who, those of us who judge, for in passing judgment on one another, we condemn ourselves because we, the judges, practice the very same things. This is not our job to judge. But we rejoice in the character of a God who is so loving that he is equally just, who will one day perform all that is right on the behalf of his people. So it's important that we don't ever take God's place as judges, right? Because, first of all, because we're often unjust in our judgment. That's what Romans is saying. You have no right to judge because a lot of times you're <clears throat> doing the same thing. I'm doing the same thing. So God says, don't take my place. I will be the judge. You can rest in the reality, the great reality, that I will judge, that my love is backed by perfect justice. But don't take my place. Because often you're an unjust judge. But also because a lot of times we get in the way of God's justice. He has to actually sometimes discipline us from the scene in order to get to those who did the wrong. I, I mean, a number of you have raised children. And um, sometimes we've had situations where one of my children, again, did something that aggravated the other. And sure enough, that second person blows up. And does something really radical. You know, I mean, maybe they sock them in the jaw. I don't know what they just They get really upset. And do something. You know what has to happen before I can deal with the original problem? With the perpetrator of the crime? I have to deal with the one who is now blown up and is all. That's what happens in, in the body sometimes. And that's what happens sometimes in our interactions with the world. We get into taking God's place and we get it all wrong because we get in the way of God's justice. So instead of appealing to God to do what is right in the right time, we kind of get in the way. And we get right in the middle of what God wants to do. And he has to deal with me, he has to deal with you, before he can even get to the one who perpetrated the crime in the first place. So we don't want to get in the way of God's justice. But we also sometimes are doing it with just not the right timing. Did, did you catch that in chapter 6 when the souls are crying from under the altar, what they're crying? They're, they're crying for God's justice. And what does God say? A little longer. A little longer. It's not quite the right time. Now it's important that we ask also, what about where we deserve judgment? What about where we deserve judgment? Because let's face it. 
We do. I, I mean, just look at your last week of life. Okay, look at your last six hours. Is there anything in your life in the last six hours that before a holy God would stand you in the place of judgment? There's mine. Yeah. So what are we going to do about the fact that we deserve judgment? That is why it's so important that in chapter 5 we see Jesus not only as the king from a kingly line, but we see him as the slain lamb. Because God visited all of the judgment that belongs to me and you on his son. It's really why the cross is so horrible. It's really why the cross is such an agonizing thing to behold. Because God visited all his righteous wrath for all my sin on Jesus. So now when we stand in Jesus, there's no wrath left. That's Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 1. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? If you're in Christ Jesus, the wrath of God has already fallen that belongs to you. It's already fallen, but it's fallen upon him, and you under him find no wrath, no condemnation, because you are in Christ Jesus. John Newton, author of the probably one of the most loved songs of all of Christendom, Amazing Grace, wrote many other songs. One of them has this verse in it that I think is, an, is a great way for us to look at this truth of what happens for us when we consider the possibility of God's judgment. He said, let us wonder, grace and justice join and point to mercy's store when through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. Did you, did you hear that? Grace and justice join in Jesus because he took the justice that we might experience the grace. God's justice is important because it is the founding principle, in a sense, upon which the entire world is built. His justice asserts that there is right and that there is wrong and that wrong will not go unpunished forever. Without the justice of God, the entire world would literally dissolve into anarchy of every person doing what's right in his own eyes without regard for any standard of righteousness. But God is just, and he will do what is right. But there's more. Look at Revelation chapter 15, and you'll find that he's worthy to establish his kingdom. Revelation chapter 15, 1 through 4, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last... For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast with its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses. This is the anthem coming. The servant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, all nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And then Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, listen, for 
the Lord, our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It's a mockery of justice, really, if a sentence, a righteous sentence, is issued without the authority to carry it out. Let's say that our God is a righteous judge. He's worthy to judge the world. But he has not the authority, he has not the power to actually carry such a sentence out. Again, it's kind of like a pat on the head. Boy, that was sure wrong, and I'm sorry it happened to you. Maybe someday someone can do something about it. That's not the way our God does. Our God is both the righteous judge, and in Revelation we see that he is the reigning king. I always love the tale of a conquest in that same chapter, chapter 19. You find it here at, toward the uh, middle of the chapter. In verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun. This is chapter 19, verse 17. I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Okay, got the idea, you got the picture. All the armies of earth gathered to make war with one, right? And the armies that come with him. Okay, all the armies of earth gathered together to fight against him. Listen to what happens. It's a tremendous drama. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and had worshipped its image. Now, there may be more drama in there than John is telling us. There may be more than the Holy Spirit told John. But how much are we told? What happened? Great conflict is set up. The armies of heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ upon the white horse. All the armies of earth and all of their powers, all the kings of the earth gathered together and... It's done. Why? Because he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. He has the authority to execute the sentence that he delivers. When he says justice will be done, it will be done. So you can take great comfort today, not only in the fact that your God is a righteous judge, but your God is the reigning king. And he will do what is right. But there's even more. Because if you look further into the book of Revelation, you find that he is also worthy to reward the righteous. In chapter 7, another of these anthems, chapter 7, beginning in verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every tribe, from all the of every nation from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, John says, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? John said, Essentially, I don't know. You know. 
And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Another song. Here we are. Verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the Lamb. In the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven. Saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ And he shall reign forever and ever. Again, he is the just judge who is also the king. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God saying, listen to what they say in this anthem. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged and your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged. In other words, God, you are worthy. You are worthy to judge the world. And it's also the time for rewarding your servants. For rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. God in his judgment does not simply come to judge the wicked. But as you stand under the shelter of the one who took the judgment for you, he comes to reward the righteous. That's really the idea in Isaiah chapter 40. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. May I ask, what kind of reward is this? We could talk, well, there's all these different rewards. Yes, there are all those rewards in the Bible. And all of them are valid and accurate and true. But what, perhaps, is the greatest reward? The reward that we're hearing here in chapter 7. The reward that we're hearing in Isaiah chapter 40. What is the reward with which we will be rewarded forever? We will be in the very presence of the God who's redeemed us. We started off saying this morning that when we come into contact with God, we're changed. That's what John says in 1 John chapter 3. When we come into contact with God, when we see him as he really is, we are transformed. We are made like him. We've seen how through the book of Revelation, one of the things that God does when he comes is he judges. And he has the authority to do that because he's the king. But he also rewards. And he rewards by giving you a chance for being eternally changed. He gives you the chance to be eternally changed changed by bringing you into his very presence. What a chance. What an opportunity for us to come to the God who will make all things right. And beyond that, he'll reward his servants. Because Jesus conquered, he is worthy to offer us a seat with him. This is the context of Revelation. We are seated with him. In his father's throne. It's chapter 3 verse 21. The one who conquers. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. 
as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Where will you be forever? Sitting in the throne with Jesus. Ruling and reigning together with him. God will make all things right. You look around the world and you see a lot of things that aren't right. And I want to just exhort you as we conclude that Jesus is not just worthy to do all these things, but he's worthy for us to trust him until he does. He hasn't done it yet. Not all wrongs have yet been made right. It isn't the right time yet. Though the souls are still crying from the altar. But he will. And we can trust him until he does. So Hebrews were exhorted, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. In Revelation 22, the very last of this book, we hear the promise of the Lord Jesus. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. And then in verses 17 through 21, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things, verse 20, says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So in the middle of darkness, when injustice rules the day, we can trust him. When the wicked flourish and the righteous seem to suffer, Trust him. When current events make it look like the world is falling apart and you're tempted to despair, trust him. When your personal life is a shambles and you're struggling to make sense of it all, trust him. When your health fails, your job ends, or your loved ones die, trust him. When you're misunderstood or misrepresented, when you get called on the carpet for someone else's failure, or when you, someone else gets the credit for the good you've done, trust him. Jesus is worthy. Worthy to judge the world in righteousness. Worthy to reward the righteous. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Great Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the slain Lamb, you are worthy. You are worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing forever. You're worthy to take the scroll to open its seals and to judge the world. You're worthy to establish your kingdom. You're worthy to reward the righteous. And you're worthy to be trusted until you do. We trust you. We trust you. With all the personal injustices that get under our skin and make us long for the day when everything that is done in secret is made known. We trust you when all the events that are playing out on the world stage may scare us and make us long for security for that world where nothing unrighteous ever enters. We trust you to complete in us the good work that you've begun. And all this because you, the slain lamb, took all the righteous wrath of God for us, your people. And because you will soon come, as the conquering king. We trust you in Jesus' name.